Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and wixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of the insight. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke, rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and many and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, wisdom will reward you, and if you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and food that is eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Lord, uh, thank you for that reading, Jude. Jude just got his Bible from your grand- grandparents? Um, I think so. Yes. Uh, they beat me to the punch. We tried to provide uh, Bibles for kids as they reached third grade, and so if you have a kid who's reaching third grade or I have not heard of it, then we will try to provide a Bible for them. Um, the kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. Prophet Isaiah, is that correct, Kelly? Wisdom has built her house. She has set it on seven pillars. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. This summer, we're starting a journey that's going to take us four summers. Um, this, this summer, we started with the book of Proverbs. Next summer, we'll go to Ecclesiastes. The book after that, we'll do is Job, and then we'll finish with um, uh, Song of Songs, which is uh, what makes up wisdom literature. There's some debate whether Song of Songs fits in wisdom literature, but we're just going with it. I'm sure by the time I get there, I'll have changed my mind. Um, intuitively, I think I should change my mind, but you learn the hard way. Uh, but this is the start of our, this has been the start of our four summers that we'll be doing this after we did five summers on the tour in the past. But one of the things um, that somebody asked me this week, actually it was, uh, uh, I think it was Kelly, she says, we're, we're only doing this for the summer. The fall kickoff when we start the book of Galatians, that's coming up, is the Sunday after Labor Day. That's in the bulletin. You're on chapter 9, and there are 31 chapters in this book. Uh, this is it mapped out. What's your game plan here, Matt? Um, and what I've been trying to say, and maybe I've, I haven't said it as clearly as I could, is that Proverbs 1 through 9, which is this biggest block here on the left, is this sort of frame to the book. It contains 10 lectures, which we've talked about, about a father giving advice to a son, father and mother giving advice to children, um, these type of things in which they're trying to bestow upon them the notion of what it means to learn wisdom, 
what it means to move into wisdom, and why it's important. The eight and nine contain Lady Wisdom speaking herself, this sort of pre-incarnate, pre-created wisdom, this logic which undergirds the universe. Uh, nine is, is, is Lady Folly, who's been um, sort of hanging around in some of the lectures, trying to pull him down. Um, and it's not just Lady Folly, but there are, there are gangs of men, too, that he can fall in with, the hearer of Proverbs. And so it's trying to set up why we should do this. 10 through 29 are the sayings that we most know as Proverbs. So that's the largest chunk of the book. And I was thinking about it. Those are hard to preach on. We're going to try it for two Sundays. And, and I'm trying to think about it uh, with the help of one commentary on maybe one Sunday. This is next Sunday, so you won't have to wait a mystery for long. One Sunday on, on how it's warning against vice and one Sunday on how it's trying to aim us towards virtue. And this is classical Christian language for virtue and vice and how we're sort of going to move through this. And so I'll try to knock out that in one chunk. And then, as I said last week, we'll, we'll cover the Proverbs 31 woman at the end, which I think is an interesting way of talking about what does it mean when it, wisdom becomes incarnate in the world. In the same way we talk about the Son, the Logos of the divine, becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ. Um, so that's where we're going from here. So this is the, the ninth sermon, but we do have a plan to finish the book not going forever on each individual saying that makes up the book of Proverbs. But as the ninth sermon, we return to this sort of this image of, of wisdom and folly. And in the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, and many of the wisdom traditions, there's this two roads. There's this two mindset sort of philosophy. There's one that goes to life, and there is one that goes to death. There is wisdom and folly. In Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, which Emily read for us this morning, we heard about the two roads wide is the one that leads to destruction. Um, also in the Sermon on the Mount, we have another example of there are two houses wise man builds his house upon the rock, and an unwise one builds it upon the sand. Um, there's this two tensions, and it's, it's, as I tried to name it earlier, it's hard for us in the modern world to get down to the, that there are just two right things. We like gray. But the wisdom traditions, and Proverbs, one of the most likely sources of it, is one that sort of says, let's set that aside and say, are you walking the path towards life are you um, disciplining yourself towards wisdom? Are you feasting with Lady Wisdom? Or are you listening to folly? Are you walking the path towards death and destruction? This is one of these big themes in the book of Proverbs. And one of the things in talking to people about this series outside of church is the book of Proverbs in many ways inhabits um, a world that's trying or is trying to construct your world for you. It's trying to make a map of how the world functions. So it used to be um, you uh, were raised um, in in a family in a household in this where it was more explicit and implicit the notion of how things came to be and how it functioned and what is our order in it. If you think back 200 years ago, you never asked somebody, "What are you going to major in in college?" Um, let alone at the week they're finishing, uh, what are you going to do after? As they say, well, for the thousandth time, I'm answering that question, um, uh, leave me alone. Um, 
you inhabited a story that was almost already made for you, and it had paths to which you could walk towards righteousness, and it had paths in which you could walk towards destruction, and it was sort of clear, and it was narrated in a way, um, both explicitly and implicitly, that sort of suggested that there was a place here for you, or there were traps along the way, there was a way of sort of mapping your world and universe. And this is important to do because now we, we, we don't do it quite as implicitly as we ex- explicitly or implicitly as we used to. One of the quotes I like to use from Stanley Harawas is we, we believe that uh, you have no story except for the cho- story you chose when you had no story, that the modern world kind of tries to treat us as blank slates, that we're not inheritors of this tradition. This is why I think intuitively when the father starts giving advice to the son in Proverbs, we kind of... Um, resist that image from the get-go, I think. If, if you're of a certain age today, it's sort of as like, um, that's a resistance thing. Like, I want to pick my own path. I want to go my own way. But I think what Proverbs has been trying to set up is a way in which um, you move into a world that makes sense in some ways. It's why I think it's the first of the wisdom books when we think about it, because Ecclesiastes takes a different stance on sort of like how does uh, conflict come in the world. And Job takes a much, much different stance, which is when all of that has been done and it fails, what is the answer? Those are, those are different questions for different summers. But I think there's a priority to getting the first one right. I think there's this notion that let's start with Job. And if you started with Job, you'd have a disconfigured notion of what the world is. It would all seem like a game and a trap. There would be no, like, that there's a right order to things that sometimes fails or occasionally fails or always fails in, in a sinful way, whichever you want to say. But it would seem like, man, whatever what deal was made has broken permanently if you start with the book of Job. But what I think Proverbs does is it grounds us well. When we go through the Psalms, uh, one of the typologies I like to use for it is Psalms of orientation, where the world is it should be. Psalms of disorientation, which makes up a larger part of the Psalter than people would like to admit, and when things fall apart. And then there's a third class of Psalms, which are Psalms of new orientation. They're Psalms of sort of... um, of, of reconstructing ourselves on the other side of chaos and disorder. And I think that's helpful to think about with wisdom literature as well. I would say, lastly, on the book of Job, which I tried to allude to last week with Lady Wisdom, is she's this thing that's interwoven into creation. The imagination of the Proverbs and its archetype is trying to suggest that she was there while it was being made, that she was almost an architect along with it. If you read the book of Job to the, to the end, or don't just read the end, which is part of the problem which happens with the book of Job, but anyways, um, uh, although it's four guys giving bad advice to his friend for like 30 chapters, so I can understand why people jump to the end on that. Um, but what's revealed to Job at the end is that he doesn't understand creation. He wasn't there when it was made. Were you there when I said to the oceans this far? And Job's answer, this is all too wonderful for me, reveals that, that while Job may have this place in what all falls apart, Lady Wisdom's sort of intertwining through creation is still the answer, even as that seems to be not true. That Job sees something in that moment, that he is so um, uh, not clued into all the ways the universe functions, that he, he submits that this, even in all his loss, is too wonderful for him. 
I'm excited to get to that book next summer, but that, that's just sort of a start um, from what we're talking about today, this two-road sermon. Um, the, instead of roads today, though, it's funny, we have two dinner parties, um, speaking some people's love language more than I. Roads connotates walking, connotates driving, connotates kids crying in the back seat. Um, dinner parties constitutes babysitters, in-laws uh, watching the kids, fun times, this, that, and the other. Um, so the book of Proverbs, in its wisdom, has exhibited two tendencies for us that can be helpful. Um, and Lady Wisdom sets her own house and dinner, dinner party. There's a small interlude in this chapter that Jude read for us, and then Lady Folly sets her dinner party, and you hear from both of them on what's going on. Um, they have these rival, rival sort of households um, and these rival meals that they're setting up. And this is sort of like the final showdown, too. Like I said, chapter 10 begins the, the short sayings that we're familiar with as Proverbs. So this has been set up from the beginning of the book. And if you go back to what's the prologue to Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, um, you'll see that this kind of mirrors that in some ways. Fear of the Lord um, being the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, making a, a big point in both of those sections, that that's uh, deeply important in, in 1 and 9. So it's kind of like this has been bookended for us to go into the rest of what's going to go on. So this is this final showdown between these two things. But what they're both fighting for is for the attention of, of the simple or the uncommitted or the naive. Um, what they're both speaking out to is these sort of wayward, free-wandering people. Um, this is the notion that they're working with here, is that there are uncommitted people in the world. And both Lady Wisdom, who will go up to the highest places and address them and send servants out, and Lady Folly, who just sits at her door and screams at them trying to entice them, um, different strategies at work here, which is worth thinking about, but they, both of them, are trying to entice people into their schools and into their ways, away from the simple, away from um, uh, dimness, away from uh, uncommitted lives. Um, they're looking at these people as sort of free agents in the wisdom market at the moment. And one of the things I wanted to say about that is, is what does it mean to think about the simple, the uncommitted, these people today in some ways? Um, we have categories. I mean, there's, there's certainly people who, who aimlessly sort of choose Lady Folly. So let's just admit that that still exists today. But it seems like a lot of our lives is suspended in between we are unpersuaded to join either camp. When I used to do um, youth ministry, they called it benign whateverism. when you would talk to people. Um, you would sort of say, what do you think about this? What are you doing? Um, uh, and picking the high schoolers for that is, 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 it's becoming more evident, I think, as we move into um, different phases of understanding adulthood. This, this notion of being uncommitted and uninterested and unfocused um, on these things is actually becoming, in some sense, a way in which we think it's a virtue to weird ways. It, I used to have Twitter, and it was shocking to me the number of people who would announce um, how much, well, you probably have heard this, I don't even know who's playing in the Super Bowl. And people go, oh, you must have finished War and Peace recently. Like, and, and really the fact is that they just consumed some other vapid form of media like the rest of us. They just didn't see who was playing in the Super Bowl. Like, like it's one thing to say, I don't know who's playing in the Super Bowl because I've lived a deep, well-intentioned life, and that doesn't seem like something that attracts me. Although, I think if you lived a deep, well-intentioned life, your response wouldn't be, 
I don't even know who's playing in the Super Bowl, your response would be, a party sounds fun, tell me who's playing, and I would like to share in that joy with you, rather than the smugness that comes with, I don't even know who's playing. Now, that's just a small example, and I'm sorry if you or somebody you love has ever said those words, because it's not meant to be. It's, it, that is the small example of the bigger problem. I don't really even care about that. I won't share in your joy, but I certainly didn't even take time to decide why I'm indifferent towards this. That's one of the ways in which I think this shows up in the world. The next one is, um, uh, this is the one I think I struggle with the most, is um, ironic distancing or, or sarcasm. Um, you know, that everything can be a joke, everything can be summed up in this way. That, that um, there's a funny Portlandia skit where they're like, have you read the Atlantic article? Well, if you had read the New York article, this, uh, that's one way, that's a different one that we could talk about that I don't think is a, a big temptation here. But there, there's a way in which, like, I want to tell you a joke, but first I have to tell you about the SNL skit it appeared in. Um, I want to tell you about a funny line, but unless you've seen um, Talladega Nights, well, now I have to recount. And so we function in these sort of short slogan-like ways that don't represent maybe traditional or real humor, and they're shared um, cross-culturally in ways that sort of make a joke out of everything. It, it's a, uh, like, boy, that escalated quickly works well to dismantle a lot of situations rather than stepping into the situation. Um, it's this ironic sort of smugness, this separation, this um, uh, distancing from it. Uh, uh, there's a bit of um, uh, the free agent nature. This is the other one that you know we, we don't want to commit. That, I think, is a big one, but that's a more ironic one. The ironic distancing. Um, I, one we hit on last week is remaining unimpressed. Um, well, that's cool, but have you seen this? In a world of, of YouTube videos and being able to see everything, by the way, it's kind of like try to, to craft joy in your life for things you authentically see because you could always look up something more impressive. That's just sort of a rule. To, I mean, if you were like back in pre-TV, pre-internet, and it was like, I once saw a guy do 10 flips, cool story. I once looked up on the internet the person doing the most flips ever, not that interesting. Um, but we have this way of sort of remaining unimpressed in the modern world. The, the last one I think is, is, we hit on a little bit last week, was remaining naive. Um, there is a meal set for life that leads into wisdom and truth. There is somebody who screams out in front of their house, attempting to entice you in with false promises, and what she hides in her house, house is death, and the gateways to hell. This goes back to the mapping of the world. There are lots of people, and Christians struggle with perhaps this the most, but I see it in non-Christian culture too, that we don't see, one, the goodness as well as we could, but we certainly live in naive to the destruction that lurks around the corner. And not only that, I think lurks in our own human hearts. We don't understand the destruction we ourselves are prone to, and it makes us unaware of the destruction other people are prone to. And we get blindsided by a world in which has been displayed for us if we are but willing to listen. There are people bent on destruction, is what Proverbs have told us, and they're in party with this folly, this adultery, this betrayal of what God has created as good. 
And if you can begin to see that and understand that, and understand it in your own heart, I mean, one of the phrases, uh, the, the things uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said is, you know, the line between good and evil runs down every heart, and anybody who wishes to wor- rid the world of evil must be willing to cut out part of their own heart. Like, that we exist in this way as well. And one of the things... Um, that, that they say PTSD is based around is sort of a naive sense of what's going to happen in situations of conflict or a naive sense of what you are capable of. Those two things I think are suggestive of this way of being naive in the world isn't helpful for us. That was a, a bit of a long introduction to what I think these people are calling out to in our world, these different sort of ways of moving through it in which we don't dine with Lady Wisdom and we, uh, folly's interesting, and we'll get to it as we walk through the text, but folly is just sort of like um, you end up there because you walked um, uncommitted for so long sometimes. It just doesn't, sometimes people jump right into it, but sometimes it's been so long. We talked about this with Psalm 1, that, that they don't talk with the scoffers, uh, they don't walk with them, and they don't sit with them. Like, you start talking with these things, and before you know it, you're laying there and unable to move forward. Um, it's an example of what we might call also hitting rock bottom and then reordering yourself to be able to recover again. Um, but that's sort of the way this sort of happens, um, these sort of rival dinner parties. So let's walk through the text. Uh, this is an image I found of Lady Wisdom's party. Um, and then there's an opposite one for Lady Follies. Uh, she, Lady Wisdom, erects a house, and it is built on seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She's also set her table. She sent her service out, and she calls from the highest point in the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come, eat my food, and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways, and you will live. Walk in the way of insight." Lady Wisdom begins her, uh, Lady Wisdom first is described as one who has made her house and erected upon seven pillars. First, let's go with the seven pillars. The seven pillars is this fascinating thing. There are like eight different answers for what the seven pillars are. My favorite is in the ancient Near East Jewish culture, saying seven was like saying a dozen. So completely meaningless, it's just the number we fill in when we like want a whole number. Like, so you could say it's a dozen pillars. That was the funniest one because I was like, wow, that makes the other seven seem like they're trying really hard to make something of this. Um, obviously, there's, there's, I think that there are two, three ways that I think, think about this that are um, sit in harmony well together, though. The first is that she's built a house. Like we are invited into a house, and house signifies this place of stability. She's built a house for us. The second is the, the cosmological sort of signifiers. Obviously, there's seven days of creation, um, but that she's um, architect something bigger into the world. Like she's built creation, sits on her house. Like she's built something grand. And so what she's inviting you into is a place in which to navigate creation. So stability in the first house. And the second one, uh, all of creation in a way that in which to feast in the way that it is ordered and gives truth and goodness and beauty. The, the, the last one, I think, which is complementary to this, is she's built a temple. Um, she's built a place of worship. 
It's important, one, because I think um, Lady Wisdom has been speaking about, uh, spoken about in, in co-creator-type um, ways, that she, she's this religious sort of symbol. So, of course, she builds a temple for people to other, gather. But the second is, and we talked about it way too much in the book of Deuteronomy, but I think it's an absent theme in the world today, is, is it makes Lady Folly's place the place of idolatry. It makes going to that place worshiping another god. In the ancient Near East, this would have been very clear to most people, too. You would walk to somebody else's temple and worship there. The early Christians, I think I've, I've talked about this before, are, confused, are, are often confessed to be um, atheists because they don't go to all the other temples. Um, and their temple doesn't really exist at the early Christian period time either. They meet everywhere, but they have no God that we can sort of go, oh, look, he's not that great um, because he lives and reigns in the heavens. And, and so in our modern world, idolatry takes on a different form, but it's still one of the temptation that pulls us out. So we have this way, and she, she builds creation, she builds a temple, she builds a household, or it's just a dozen pillars, um, which I just, again, find incredibly comical. And she prepares her meat and mixed wine. Compare this to Lady Folly, who has uh, bread and stolen water. Um, and we'll get to what that might mean. But she's prepared this massive table for her people to meet at together. And she sends out her servants. Folly doesn't have any servants. And it's a bit uh, of an example, I think, that evil is destructive in itself sometimes. It's hard to have people who want to uh, go out and support people for evil because it, it's self-deceptive. Uh, it's hard to trust people in that way. Incidentally, because hers is also leading to death, it's hard to send out dead people. Um, the dead don't make great evangelists. The Lady Wisdom sets out servants is, is that she sets out teachers and people into the world to pronounce this message and to persuade other people. You see the early church, funny enough, talking about this with the teaching of the apostles. Like there's been people and teachers and this, that, to instruct people and to bring them into this place. She says to those who have no sense, um, which is not a compliment, come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Leave your simple ways each of the Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each begin with sort of this repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Leave beside the way in which you've been and turn towards the kingdom of heaven. See, Lady Wisdom has this way of, of asking something from the people she's with. Um, that's a, I can't remember what ended up as the quote on the back of the bulletin because it printed before I really thought about it. Was it T.S. Eliot? Okay, um, that's good to know. This is the spot where I would use that quote. Um, it comes from a longer poem, and that's way too small, but uh, the four quartets, and this is the end of it. But the line I looked up when I was thinking about what Lady Wisdom offers, it's a condition of complete simplicity. This is way down in here. Um, Costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flames are enfolded into the crown not of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. You can read this whole section. The poem is very long, but what, I, what stuck out to me is, is what Lady Wisdom is offering is a condition of complete simplicity, which sounds to me like a lot like free, but then it also, he continues, costing not less than everything. 
How I found this line, too, was Bonhoeffer has a line in his costly discipleship section of, of uh, discipleship, or the cost of discipleship, those, yeah, two different titles, um, where he's, uh, I couldn't find it, and maybe he didn't say this, but that, that costly grace is free, and yet it demands everything. Um, Lady Wisdom is offering something freely displayed, but yet to enter into it, you have to leave behind your simple ways. You have to set upon a different path. The last uh, thing I want to say about that portion of Lady Wisdom real quickly is that the early church had this incredibly gifted way of reading Christ so much into Lady Wisdom. This is from Gregory of Nicaea. We say, therefore, that when he said in his previous discourse that wisdom built a house for itself, he is speaking, uh, and Carla, enmatic, en, en, enigmatically, about the formation of the Lord's flesh. For true wisdom did not live in someone else's building, but built a home for itself from the virgin's body. Um, there was, I have an ancient Christian commentary in scriptures where there's just a list of, of their commentary on scriptures. This one was very long of all of them talking about how the temple that is erected is the one that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Um, and I just thought that was phenomenal and worth sharing in the way that they were able to see that clearly and to sort of own that without having to do divine mechanics work. Um, we'll jump to Lady Folly's speech real fast. She is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. Um, she sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by who go straight on their way. Let all those who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her deaths are deep in the realm of the dead. Folly has been portrayed as many different things, an adulterous, um, turbulent, uh, loud, sort of throughout the the book of Proverbs so far. And what she's calling people in is to this sort of um, meal of sort of nothingness. Let all those who are simple come to my house. Now, Lady Wisdom said, let the simple come and leave behind their ways. Uh, Folly says, come and remain simple and uncommitted. She doesn't really ask anything from you. To those who she has no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. Stolen water is sweet um, in the ancient Near East. First has this connotation of water is precious. To steal somebody's water is perhaps one of the most demonic things you can do. Um, water is what keeps us alive. We have taps and everything like that we can just walk to. But in a world where you had to go and get your water and find water and make water, to steal it and calling it sweet, you could think that's perhaps one of the most devious things you could come up with. The second is falling in, following with the book of Proverbs. Water is a connotation for sexuality. Um, uh, the stolen of sexuality together is sweet. Um, there's, there's something about that in which we steal from people when we corrupt that nature of it. We take from that which is not ours. Um, and it can't be given back. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Still, still fits with sexuality, but what I was thinking about 
when we got to that line, is a lot of the habitual sins that sort of seem to creep up today are ones that can be committed secretly. Um, and, there, and you set feasts before yourself before you go into them, um, whether it's alcoholism, um, uh, drug addiction, pornography addiction, um, that you find silent places of solace, uh, technology addiction. I mean, uh, y- your kids are gone or away or doing something in the yard, but they're not bugging you, um, and the ability to sit and to feast on something um, uh, in secret. Uh, it feels delicious to us. And yet what we mostly know, people have struggled with those sins, and you hear from this, is that they end up feeling empty on the other side of them. Whatever is uh, not shared, I think, ends up that way. I have this uh, pattern of when I I like to have nice meals, uh, particularly steak, shared with others um, at home, but out is really a special time. And one time I was at a conference, um, this is maybe seven years ago, and I was by myself, and Kelly was like, why don't you go out to a steakhouse in Kansas City and have a nice meal by yourself? Um, and it was miserable. Um, it was too hard to enjoy something like that alone. Um, it was just, uh, you know, this idea of eating food in secret. You think that's, that'll be a good idea because I can get what I want in the sides that come a la carte at a steakhouse. I don't have to debate. No cream spinach. I hate that. Um, and yet, when you're there alone, partaking in this, it's this emptiness that creeps in. We don't have to believe food eaten in secret is delicious when it comes from the mouth of Lady Folly. Um, I think what we know is that things shared um, in community and with other people brings a deeper and wider deliciousness that we miss out on. So Lady Folly um, tries to bring in the simple and let them stay in their path. The interlude, um, verses 7 through 10 Whoever uh, corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach righteousness and they will add to their learning. This first warning, I think, comes alongside too. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is a helpful sort of wisdom school for us, is that do not cast your pearls before swine. Um, Trying to instruct the scoffers, the uncommitted, the arrogant, the people who think they're too good for this, is only apt to lead in Proverbs to insults and incur abuse. I was talking to my neighbor uh, yesterday who, who left behind alcoholism through um, a tra- traumatic death of her mother um, and stopped drinking herself and this, that, and the other. And she's, she's been back to where she's from several times. But people incur upon her like, well, now that you're all better than us, now that, that you're figured it all out, well, you know, you're a much different person than you were before. And instead of celebrating um, in this, uh, and, and she's, she's smart. She knows that she can't offer insight, particularly at this moment, into those people's life. For her to, to try and rebuke them, uh, to teach them wisdom, would not be effective in this way. Uh, she, she is empowered, I told her, to, to keep living her life in the fullness that she's found on the other side of this. And in time, I think people will see health 
they won't come back with flippancy or concern. I mean, not everybody will, um, but some people will come to see health in that. Um, and so she then um, can become one who instructs the wise to say to people, um, you know, you think it's just too much every now and then, but it's really becoming a problem for you. Um, she can instruct people who, who are, are near those gates, but not yet committed to them. And she and her own witness can speak to lots of other things. She can instruct people who want to hear about what it means to recover. What it means to recover, what it means to deal with grief without the medicine that you always love. Um, I mean, to think about that, I think, makes her story even more enlightening to say that, you know, I, I lost something instead of self-medicating with the things that always at least numbed me. I haven't returned to those. Uh, to be one who has looked life straight in the face, I think, is, is a gift that she has. Um, yeah, so then it comes back to in verses 10 through 12. This is where we'll end. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For wisdom, your days will be many, and your years will be added to your wife. For if you, if you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone suffer. The fear of the Lord, which we've tried to say is helpful to think of as one word rather than as separate words. The fear of the Lord is this concept, which is the beginning of wisdom, um, the knowledge of the Holy One, it says uh, here, is to begin to practice this knowledge that there's something stronger and, and beyond myself. Um, there is a... a, a um, line a truth, there is God on the outside of me that I can live in awe of and reverence of. I think fear is still a proper word. I, I would hate to give that one up in the sense in which that can instruct us in life in different ways. So much of what um, we, I think, can have a tendency to go about our lives doing is living as self-autonomous individuals in which there is no power beyond ourselves, only limits imposed by like my lack of money, um, and time or something. But what in fact um, Proverbs is proclaiming is there's something beyond you. And living in awe and fear and reverence directed towards that thing, we can begin to gain knowledge of the Holy One. We can begin to move in the paths of wisdom, this art of skillful listening. And by dining with Lady Wisdom, we move into that place by setting that meal there. So the, the end of today's sermon, this is funny enough, I forgot the, the real good part on why we're here, um, uh, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. That that is the final sort of, I think, beginning to the book of Proverbs is that Lady Wisdom has set her meal for us and is for us in the fear of the Lord to come there and to taste and see that the Lord is good. And this meal thing, I think, is so important because Eve, this temptation to gain wisdom ourselves in the book of Genesis, Eve looks at the fruit and see that it is good for gaining wisdom. We take one meal there, and God is in the midst of repairing that. The end, we have an eschatological, eschatological wedding banquet of the lamb. We have a fullness of meal that meets us in the end. And so, 
at Defiance Church, we um, center our room. Every room has a story is the way I like to say this. And the story of this room is not centered on the preacher or on the music team, but the story of this room is centered on the meal that's enacted by the one who invites us to eat there, who is Christ. Christ is the one who sets the table. He is the one who makes us guests, and we come and receive there. Going back to uh, Gregory of Nyssa, that Jesus is Lady Wisdom. He has set a meal before us. And this meal serves as a foretaste of that one that we will have in the fullness of time. But Kim's going to lead us in music, and then we will come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray. God, you have instructed us in wisdom through the school that is the book of Proverbs. Come, have your servants gather us and take us to learning. We ask that we would come to your table. We would come and be fed by you.